0: Hopefully, I won't mess this up too much. Sorry, Chris. All right. Well, again, uh, welcome. And welcome back to those of you who've been far and far away, uh, dealing with chaos, maybe, or family, or a little of both, because sometimes those go together. Uh, holidays and things. Hopefully, you're back in the swing of things. No? Okay. Maybe. Soon, hopefully. Yeah, we're, we're on our way. We are getting back into a series that we started before Christmas uh, called, uh, well, it's, we're going through the Gospel of John. And it's called Loved, Invited, Transformed. Uh, Three words that you really need to hear and that you really need to understand if you really want to understand that Jesus loves you, um, has invited you and transformed you. The good news that Jesus brings is intimately connected to those three words. Um, You are loved. You are dearly and deeply loved by the God who made the world. Um, By the God who made you. And God has demonstrated that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That love is not something that's static, it's dynamic, it draws you in, it invites you into a relationship with God. It, you are invited into God's kingdom. You might think that God wants nothing to do with you, God wants everything to do with you. And He's proved that in Jesus. And for those who make a move, uh, who act on that invitation, you'll find that it uh, transforms you, it changes you in the best possible ways, makes you into the person that you are always meant to be. And we're gonna see those words in action today in our text, which comes from John 9. Uh, so turn with me in a book or a device. Uh, you actually need a Bible in this church. We're not turning there for you. We want you to get in the habit and the rhythm of using one of these. Uh, John chapter nine, starting at verse one. And while you turn there, let me just say, this is a really long story. John loves to tell really long stories. So we're gonna talk about this this week and the next week we'll have a different sermon on the rest of the story uh, because I am not going to give you an hour and a half long sermon today. So. Funny, I expected kind of moans and crying there but okay cool that's fine now John 9 starting at verse 1 all right a man as he was walking along he saw a man blind from birth his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind Jesus answered neither this man nor his parents sin he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him we must work the works of him who sent me While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It's him. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Loved, invited, transformed. Of those three words, the most difficult to see might be the love of God in this story, which is what's behind the disciples' question you know, Whose fault is this, Rabbi? You might not like that question. It might seem like a really mediocre question, but I think if you had 15, 20 minutes alone with Jesus, you'd probably start asking questions like that. And maybe you ask questions like that when you pray now. I don't know. What's the deal with natural disasters? I don't understand. Why did that tragedy happen in the life of this friend that I I really care about? Why abusive relationships? Why, Why do men and women, but why do you even let that happen? How is it useful for people to get away with stuff like this? Why is this happening to me? Those are really normal questions but sometimes we feel like it's not okay to ask him. One of my favorite things about Christianity, honestly, one of my favorite things, is that our God and the story that we tell, they're not afraid of questions. Not at all. Other religious people, scared of questions. Christians sometimes, scared of questions. Some churches, very scared of questions. But the Bible is not scared of questions. And God is certainly not intimidated or insecure or afraid or surprised at your anger, at your skepticism, at your doubt or confusion, at your anguish or sorrow. In fact, there are whole books full of those things. Books of the Bible where people are just constantly talking to God about exactly those things, which makes it clear that God is really not threatened by you or by me. And actually, he would rather we tell him what's going on inside of us than pretend like nothing's going on. God would rather we scream and shout at him than say nothing at all. Notice that Jesus does not shut these guys down and say, how dare you question God? He's really okay with the question. And the disciples are asking a faithful question. They start with the assumption that God is good, that God is just, and that this is a bad thing. Being born blind is a bad thing. So someone must have done something to deserve this, they figure. And again, you might not like that question because it sounds like they're kind of blaming the victim. But personal experience, and just kind of growing out of being naïve, will slowly and steadily tell you that what goes around comes around in the world. The bad things, evil, negativity out in the universe kind of reverberates. It leaves a mark. It causes issues in ways that we don't always predict, and we can't always understand, but we can hurt other people by our actions. There are children who are born with fetal alcohol syndrome. There are people who grow up in twisted environments, and they end up twisted as a result but there are also people who grow up in twisted environments who aren't twisted. Who could sort that out? Only God. And they have him right there, and they can ask him. Why wouldn't you ask the question? The Bible will make it clear time and time again that God lets us experience the consequences of our actions and lets other people experience the consequences of other people's actions. And that is hard to watch in some of those stories. It's like watching a toddler take a fall you know is coming you just you kind of have to let it happen cuz they kind of have to get used to walking and learning that sometimes you you need to be careful it's like watching a friend of yours who you really care about make a terrible life choice it's brutal to sit on the sidelines and think someone needs to step in and stop this someone should intervene and stop this and no one does and you think i can't live I can't live people's lives for them, but if I could, I could do a better job than they did, and I could fix this. Uh, They really, they should listen, but they're not going to. And thats I would imagine that God has a very similar experience on a much grander scale. But he loves us, and he respects us, and so he lets us make choices and lets other people make choices, and that pretty much guarantees pain and heartbreak in the world. which is not comforting. And actually I think can lead you to a real caricature of who God is, which the disciples I think have. A, a bad misunderstanding of who God, you know what I mean by the word caricature. If you go to an amusement park or downtown during an arts festival or you hang out at a fair, someone will have you know, an art degree and a piece of paper and you know, want $10 and so they will draw you. Um, or some part of you that is extremely recognizable and they will exaggerate that part of you, that people will notice, right? They don't actually have to draw you that well as long as they can find some part of you that is easily recognizable and make that very big and very distinguishable, and it'll distort the image of your face, but you're still recognizable for who you are. This is a caricature of God. It distorts the image. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He has come to set the picture back the way it's supposed to go, to make it very clear who God is and how God acts. And how God loves. Jesus has come to correct bad images of God by being God in the flesh. He is the light of the world, after all, opening the eyes, not just to the blind man, but of you and I who read this story today. And he loves this man. I think that's clear by the end of the story. He loves everyone involved in John 9, even though some of them will not be interested in the invitation that he offers, the transformation that he brings so he engages this man and he engages the disciples. They ask, whose fault is this? How did this happen? Who sinned, this man or his parents? How did this happen? And Jesus doesn't answer the question, not really. And I think it's because the answer wouldn't be particularly useful in that moment. That's my guess. I bet he could give a really good sermon on the problem of pain or the nature of evil. And instead what he says is stop worrying about what's happened and watch what's about to happen. Don't pay attention to the brokenness. Pay attention to how I'm going to redeem things. And so you and I, when we come to Jesus and we say, I just don't, I don't understand why this happened in my story. I don't, I don't know what you're doing. And I don't know why the world's so broken and why I'm so broken. Trust me, watch me. I can redeem this. It's a bold claim Jesus makes, but he makes bold claims all the time. And those of us who've learned to trust him will find that time and time again, he does manage to take the the flaws and failures in our story and turn them into It's not beautiful things, at least part of a picture that makes sense. It's kind of like what jazz musicians, when they talk about, when they say that there's no such thing as a wrong note. You and I who have learned to play musical instruments would probably say there is such a thing, and I'm I'm really good at hitting those. But really good jazz musicians will say there's no such thing as a wrong note. There's a guy named David Hadju, who was a music critic in New York for many years, and he used to write really interesting columns. And uh, he talked about a time he was in a basement in a little-known club in New York uh, when Wynton Marsalis came in. I don't know if you know Winston Marsalis, but he's one of the most recognizable jazz musicians of our time. If there were a Duke Ellington of our time, he would be maybe in the running. Go on Spotify. It's really remarkable music. So he walks in with a little jazz combo, and he's hanging out in the basement, and people are just blown away because they don't know they're about to get a concert from this remarkable jazz musician. And it's just magical. He says it was the kind of thing that made you glad you had ears. People are at the edges of their seats. They're, they're not breathing because they don't want to interrupt the moment as... Marsalis stands up and he's got just a trumpet he's playing all by himself. That song from the 30s, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance. And he's making every note sing and kind of weep and wail. And a cell phone rings and shatters the moment. And there's not a lot of people in this basement. It feels like a privilege to be in this concert. And so everyone is immediately judging the guy who clearly made the sound. He stands up just mortified, wishing he could go back in time. And you're sort of expecting Marsalis to maybe just stop playing and say you guys don't deserve the music and leave. Or maybe just in that moment to start yelling at this guy and demand that he get out of there. And instead what he does, he plays the cell phone ring, note for note. And then he starts riffing on the cell phone ring. And then he manages to blend it with I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance to such a remarkable degree that he creates a brand new piece of music in front of everyone in that moment And it was amazing, Haji says. It was like you were grateful for the idiot who forgot to turn off his cell phone because he ruined the moment because that showed us just what an amazing master of music this guy was. What he could do, how he could create a new song out of nothing, out of failure and misery. That's what Jesus does in this story. He takes all of the sour notes in your story and in mine in the life of this man and he transforms it into something beautiful so that by the end of the story, this guy is singing a brand new song. A brand new song. It's difficult, I think, to understand the story from the blind man's perspective. It might help, actually, if you close your eyes. So if you close your eyes, the first thing I think you hear as the story goes on (coughs) is is just sort of the thump in the distance of footsteps, like a large group of people approaching. Blind beggar on the side of the road, he was the crunch of gravel and people laughing and chatting. And all of a sudden they see him and they get quiet because that's what always happens because this is a sad sight to see. And then one of them turns to the other and says, Rabbi, who sinned? Cool, man, that's great. This man or his parents? Thanks for throwing my parents under the bus. This is spectacular. But he's still hoping to get money from these people. And so he stays quiet. He's used to people talking about him rather than to him, being an object or furniture in the landscape rather than an actual person that you need to engage. But then Jesus says something that I think would make the man perk up. All of a sudden, he hears, neither, neither this man nor his parents. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him, the way that God works might be revealed in him. Now, when you're a blind beggar by the side of the road, you're not used to people thinking of you as, well, really anything, more of a problem to be solved. But for Jesus, you're not a problem to be solved. You're actually someone God could use, someone God cares about, someone God loves. Someone God is going to do something incredible through, reveal himself in. And so now all of a sudden you're paying very close attention as Jesus starts saying some very weird things about light and darkness and how the end is near. And then he makes a bold claim, I am the light of the world. And then you hear someone spitting near you, which is again a very familiar sound. And you're aware that someone has now crouched down in front of you and is doing something with the dirt in front of him. And all of a sudden you feel hands on your face as someone spreads mud over your eyes. Now, I'm just guessing that if you closed your eyes and I came over to you right now and spread mud on them, you would not listen to me anymore. Now, you can open your eyes. Jesus does not at any moment explain what's about to happen. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to put mud on your eyes if that's okay with you, and then if you go and wash in this pool, you'll be healed. That does not happen. No explanation at all of any kind. There must be something about Jesus. Jesus the only conclusion I can draw from this story, because that is an insulting and humiliating act. Even for a blind beggar by the side of the road. There must be something in his smell, in the sound of his voice, in the words that he says. There must be something in the touch of his hands on your face that makes you believe that he is worth following. In Greek, in this story, the word for spreading mud on his eyes, John actually uses the word for anointing. The same word he used for anointing a king with oil or a prophet. That's how Jesus touches this man's face, as though this is a moment of honor and glory for him as he puts mud over his eyes, the dust of the earth out of which God formed the first man. This is an incredible and remarkable moment, I think, where this blind man comes in contact, physical contact, with the God of the universe who loves him. And somehow in the midst of that, he feels this grand invitation that he's drawn into. And so he goes, a blind man covered in mud, stumbling through town, trying to find a body of water. That is humiliating for anyone. Asking directions from people as he goes, because he needs to find this body of water that he knows is water, that anyone else who touches it has not been healed, that it hasn't changed anyone's life in a very long time. And still he goes, because he believes in Jesus, because he's chosen to obey Jesus, because he hears an invitation in the midst of this love that you cannot just stay where you are You can't just stay where you are and expect God to do something in your life. I wonder how far you and I would go to follow Jesus. I wonder if I would have the same experience if you put mud on my face. If I go, yeah, I'll go there. I am desperate for healing and wholeness. I'm desperate to see you do something incredible in my story. Desperate to sing a brand new song. I think there is a direct relationship with our desperation and our willingness to obey God. Between how aware we are that we're broken and how desperate we are to follow Jesus. A lot of the time, the reason we don't seem that interested in obedience is because we just don't think we need his help. This blind man knows he needs Jesus. And he stumbles across town. You cannot change if you stay where you are. You can't grow and stay the same. You can't get a new identity in Jesus Christ if you're still clawing at your old identity. Those are mutually exclusive things. This man throws it all away and runs to this pool because he's accepted an invitation from the God who loves him. And that changes everything. It transforms him. There's a story I read this week in a a magazine that does not have stories like this ever. It's about a woman named Patricia Snow who often writes for the magazine. And Uh, She told her testimony, and for some reason, they decided to include it. Uh, She had an inflammation of her blood vessels that's extremely painful, and a lot of allergies and issues, and some real kind of just despair in her life. And a friend of hers dragged her to a church basement, uh, where a woman named Grace was speaking. She said, then Grace initiated the call to salvation. By this point, I was in a very dark place. Despair turning into resentment. Resentment. I listened to one ear, with one ear to the spiel about giving your life to Jesus. It was a stark and unadorned message, almost crude. It presented a choice, heaven or hell, and it reeked of platitudes. I couldn't believe people were responding and going forward, but they were, many people. What was the matter with them? And then Grace lifted her head, cocked it, and looked in my direction. There's someone up here, she said, who needs to come down. God is speaking to you. And as she said this, I suddenly felt energy like what I felt at the beach swimming in the ocean, but stronger, a curious tingling sensation like electricity, it ran down my arms and into my hands as if someone had reached for me warmly and I responded. I found myself in the aisle and going forward. Could I have turned back? I suppose I could. I remember feeling dismayed and conflicted for a moment, but I bent my head and went forward anyway, reasoning with myself that it would help me to stand up for a minute and move around. And then it began. It came at me with a roar, clamped onto me like a thousand volts, like one of those machines that starts someone's heart. And the noise had started quietly in my hands, but it built in a matter of seconds to a deafening roar. I couldn't believe it. It was so intense. It was absolutely outside my experience, and the thing was, it didn't stop. I couldn't get up. I remembered the name Lazarus flashing into my mind and the incredible thought, this is a power that could raise the dead. It's a bizarre story of a woman who doesn't believe that God heals people getting healed in a dramatic, powerful, and very tangible way because she didn't stay in her seat, because she responded to God's invitation in that moment. The blind man in this story. I would imagine it takes him a while to get to the pool. Blind people are not known for sprinting. And he manages to get there, right? Outside of Jerusalem, his pool is Siloam. Thanks for that. And he goes down into the water, and I don't know how quickly he gets healed. right? I don't know if it happens, like, in the moment the water is washing his face, suddenly he sees his hands for the first time ever. But that would be incredible. And suddenly, with joy, he turns and starts hugging some of the people nearby who are just, you know, getting water and very confused as to what's happening, because they didn't realize he was blind because he can clearly see. And maybe he stares at his reflection in the water for a little while or lays back, and watches the clouds and the birds for the first time. But at some point, he decides to go and find the guy who healed him, right? Jesus, who does this casually, he goes and looks for him. He was running back through town, back to the place where he spent most of his life begging by the side of the road. And when he gets there, Jesus is gone because Jesus is not that interested in encores and curtain calls. He healed the man, and that's good enough for him, and he's gone. But the people who are there are people who should recognize him. Uh, The translation I read said neighbors, but the word could also be translated as his relatives, people who are actually related to the man, people who passed by him every day on the road, people who should definitely see who he is. And now there's a kind of beggar blindness that hits most people. You drive past the same homeless people on a regular basis. You don't necessarily notice if they change faces because you're not really looking at their faces and they don't seem to be looking at your face all the time. No one's really interested in the humanity of the other person. So it could be that kind of blindness. But it could be there's been such a transformation in this man's life that he's actually unrecognizable. This blind man suddenly filled with a, a different spirit than he's ever been filled with before. Not just able to see, not just suddenly clean, but but a different person to such a degree that you can sense something has changed. And so people are gathering, and there's kind of a crowd at this point, because they're saying, so is that the guy? And they're saying, no, it just looks like him. And others are saying, no, I'm pretty sure that's him. And they're going back and forth. And he is used to being talked about, but at this point starts engaging these people in comfort. Like, why aren't you? Like, yes, I'm the guy. I'm clearly him. I'm wearing the same clothes I was wearing this morning. You gave me $10. Like, how do you not know that I'm, I'm definitely the guy? And they're arguing with him. They start arguing, like, you can't be the guy. That's the end of this story. There's no way that's you. He is unrecognizable by verse 8 to the point that he's saying, I'm the blind man you're talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about. And I'm like, shenanigans. There's no way. How can you see? And he says, well, there's this guy. They called him Jesus. I don't know. He put mud on my face, told me to wash in this pool. And now I can see. Where is he? I don't know. I've never seen him before. I was blind. Like, this is a very, is a very funny story in many ways. And there's this note in the New Jerusalem Bible uh, that I think is really helpful. It talks about the Pool of Siloam. And in Jerusalem, uh, there's, there's a festival. It's not Passover. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. It's a camping festival. And every year, this camping festival, people would go to the Pool of Siloam and they would draw water. And the water of Siloam was supposed to represent the Messiah and how he was going to come and be sent into the world at some point in time. So in many ways, this man has gone and washed in the waters of Jesus and come back a brand new person, completely transformed inside and out. And now he's looking for Jesus. The word transformed, uh, we loved invited transformed. Of those three words, that one was the most controversial. When we were sitting as pastors, we started debating this at great length because we really didn't like that transformed implies that this has all happened. In the past, that if you meet Jesus, your life is just fixed and magical, and you're just beautiful, attractive people walking out in the world with no problems. Now, those of us who follow Jesus find that there is a dramatic, massive transformation, but there's also ongoing work that needs to be done. There's still deep wounds and scars in people in this room. Sometimes following Jesus is in a straight line. It's kind of a roller coaster. So we didn't like transformed because it, it implies that, it, that it's a little easy. It can lead you to a misconception about following Jesus. But... The gospel transforms you, changes you, changes you to such a degree. In fact, that's such a constant promise and declaration in Scripture that I'll tell you this. If you hear the word transformed and you say, that's never happened to me, I think you need to go back to the Bible. I think you and I need to start having conversations. I think you need to get into a small group immediately because there should be a massive transformation in you. I know because there's been a massive transformation in me. You people would never listen to me talk if God had not done something incredible in my life. Believe me when I say, the only reason I have anything worth saying is because of what God has done in my life. I am a huge screw-up and failure otherwise. God does massive and amazing transformations in people's stories. Even, in fact, with some of those old wounds and scars. If you keep going back to Him, desperate for healing, willing to do whatever He calls you to do, stumble across town blind and cover him up, You might see God do some really remarkable work in your life. Have a profound testimony on the other side. Uh, Patricia continues at the end of her story. She says this. And now I was confronted with something completely different. Grappling with an entirely new experience of love. One that flooded me in the grace's word of knowledge which is what St. Paul calls her term for insight into my situation and pain. I can testify from experience that a word of knowledge can amount to a gift of faith, a conviction in the hearts of the reality of an unseen God, because when God told me I had arthritis and the spirit flooded into my hands and seized me in the death grip of ferocity of which was only exceeded by its benefits, I knew that he knew, and it made all the difference in my life. It opened a door for me that no one has ever been able to shut. Behold, says the God of Revelation, I set before you an open door. And that my hands were not the first or even the second thing I would have chosen to mend, only increased my curiosity to know this God, whose whose aims I no longer doubted coincided with mine, but whose ways were clearly his own. So my old idea of God, especially the idea of his remoteness or indifference, was blown away by the wind of the Spirit. And I was groping toward a new thing, a God with open hands, A face like the face of a mother to a newborn. A massive transformation. And she would go on to say that it changed who she was on the inside, not merely her body. She found herself far more compassionate willing to chat with people that she had no interest in before. And I know that this blind man, in the course of the story, will see both massive transformation and then kind of an ongoing transformation. We'll talk about that next week. God slowly and steadily changing him, slowly and steadily engaging him as he deals with people in the world who don't like what's happened to him, who don't like what God has done. Friends, I can tell you this you are dearly and deeply loved, dearly and deeply loved by the God who loved this blind man. You are given the same invitation that this man has been given one into healing and transformation, wholeness and change, a brand new kind of life, not merely from physical things, but emotional things deep old wounds in your story and your own mistakes and foibles and flaws and failures. God can make you into the person you were always meant to be. You've been loved, you are invited. You can be transformed by this love, the love that changes this blind man's life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are blown away by how good a musician you are at times by how you change our stories and how you offer to change others. And yet, God, so often we are struck by just what a sour note we've hit or just how bad things have gotten or just how ugly our story. We pray that your love would just embrace us in this moment, take hold of us and seize us. That your spirit would move in power in our lives, God that you would do a new thing and we would be surprised and excited and changed. In the name of Jesus, amen.